This is J.G. Hertz, the General Mar Talker on Deep Space Nine, and you're listening to Trek FM. Welcome to Season 6, Episode 15 of Commentary, Trek Stars, a show which deals with the work of Star Trek creators outside of Star Trek. I'm Mike. I'm John. And today we are joined once again by John Tenuto. How's it going, John? Hi, guys. How you doing? We're doing well. Yeah, thanks for coming back. Uh, you know, we, we just uh, wrapped up our little two-part series on uh, James Horner and we figured that we would stick with the uh, composer uh, whatnot thingy and do another composer, Jerry Goldsmith. And this is just going to be a little two-part series where, once again, we're going to look at you know his, his Star Trek work. And then next week, we're going to look at his Oscar-winning work in The Omen as well as uh, the rest of his career. But, yeah, you know... Everyone loved the the James Horner uh, episode so much that we figured we should just have you back, and then that way we don't have to do any work. Uh, <laughs> so, so thank you, thank you for coming back. Um, I feel like like this is is John week for me because you know we just came back from Vegas and I got to see a bunch of your presentations over there, and I learned a ton about Star Trek, including a little bit about Jerry Goldsmith. So. Um, so yeah, so let's just start at the beginning and take a look at, well, I guess Star Trek, the motion picture. Now, I mean, it's kind of interesting to me. It's always been sort of interesting to me that like Jerry Goldsmith was sort of a contemporary of Alexander Courage. You know, he had done the Twilight Zone while, you know, right in that same time period that, that Star Trek was on the air and everything. But at some point, I guess he he did make the jump to features, and what what is it that led him to Star Trek? Well, actually, he he was, um, if not the one of the first choices for the TV show. Um, he uh, Gene Roddenberry listed him on as one of the composers that he wanted for the Cage. In fact, talked to him about uh, doing the Cage, and Jerry Goldsmith just couldn't time wise. Um, do it. And so it was actually Jerry Goldsmith who recommended Alexander Courage to do The Cage because Alexander Courage had been his orchestrator and the two of them had, as you said, contemporaries and worked together. Um, so, you know, he he had always been in Gene Roddenberry's mind, you know, to be associated with Star Trek. And of course, then uh, Alexander Courage stepped in and, and you know, created his iconic score because part of the thing with The Cage, right, you were not just scoring the pilot, you were creating the theme song for the show um, as well. So, um, you know, luckily we had Alexander Courage because that's always so iconic. But once the motion picture came around, um, it just made sense to go back to uh, Jerry Goldsmith. And Jerry Goldsmith said that he was delighted to do it. He, he always wanted to do it um, and, and like Star Trek, you know. And, of course, he had just come off of, you know, uh, a couple years earlier winning winning the Oscar for the omen so it was a huge uh, you know really a, a, a validation I think for Star Trek I think you know Star Trek and Superman and all that that era I remember seeing and maybe you guys had that same experience when you saw the trailer for Superman the movie 
the one that just sort of has the names of the, of the, of the people that are in it. And uh, I remember the audience sort of snickering a little bit, like, oh, my gosh, Superman the movie, because we had thought, you know, or the vision was the TV show. Like, how do you do this as a movie? But once you start seeing names like Marlon Brando and, you know, Gene Hackman and Glenn Ford, you're like, oh, oh, my gosh, this is a movie. And I think that in a way, Jerry Goldsmith uh, was that for Star Trek. Right. This was this was this was a film composer and, and arguably even at that time, uh, you know, one of the big three. Uh, film composers um and so he he his name being attached to star trek the motion picture helped convince people that this truly was a motion picture and not just uh you know uh with all due respect to the batman film not the bat you know batman movie uh which is just an episode writ large from the 60s and so that's <laughs> that i i think he he lent a gravitas to it so it was very important for star trek that he accepted um, but he wanted to accept, so I always loved that he really wanted to work on Star Trek. What, was there any, ever any talk of, of having Alexander Courage come back to do the music for the movie? Well, I think there was, you know, in the sense of, you know, not to say as a fallback, but, um, you know, there were a lot of people from the original uh, TV show that were brought back. Mike Miner was brought back. Um, Fred Phillips was brought back. Um, you know, the people that had contributed behind the scenes were brought into as much as possible. Um, this, the, 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 I think the dynamic of what was going on was that uh, Jerry Goldsmith says that one of the things that he, you know, he's, he's sort of given ideas or notes or, 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 you know, hopes that, that Roddenberry and Wise have. And one was that they, they, they needed a score. They felt they needed a score that was equally as memorable as Star Wars. Yeah. And mm-hmm. and so they needed a composer, you know, um that was equal to John Williams. And I think that that was one of the things that drove them to Goldsmith say over somebody like Alexander Courage just from a sort of experience point of view. Um and also kind of the hot factor, right? Jerry Goldsmith was was exceptionally hot at that time and as as he would remain for his whole career, but he was, you know, just like I said he just won an Oscar. Um and there was also you know, he didn't want Goldsmith didn't want to use the Courage fanfare. You know, not because he didn't like it or respect it, but really because there was this idea of trying to differentiate this as a film, as a feature film, and then the worry being if you're using the original theme song, um, you know, you're you're you know you're you're hearkening back to the show. Now he he did feel that it was appropriate to use that when you had captain's log entries and things like that. So you'll hear Alexander Courage's um, notes there, but it wasn't like he was afraid of anybody from the original show. Fred Steiner, I know, you know, did did some of the orchestration on some of the Star Trek films for for Jerry Goldsmith, and would come in and do ghostwriting of of you know the little little snippets of music that needed to be done, um, which is very common, you know, where someone else comes in and writes a writes a ten second piece of music because it's something that's either last minute or the, the you know it's like a you know the A camera and B camera kind of thing, mm-hmm. and um, so it wasn't like he was afraid of using Alexander Courage or or, or, or anything like that. But uh, uh, I think the idea was you needed we, they needed to go big, you know, um, and uh, Jerry Goldsmith was the right choice. Obviously, <laughs> uh, he, he had uh, he had worked with Wise before, hadn't he? Yeah, they had done a film um, together with each other back in the nineteen sixties, I believe it was. Um, and uh, you know, Wise Wise was you know wanted 
you know, wanted Goldsmith also. So it wasn't like there was any, you know, who wouldn't want him, right? Sure. Um, you know, you, you, they weren't going to get John Williams, not because John Williams wouldn't want to do it. I mean, John Williams did the theme song to Lost in Space, and he obviously was conversant in science fiction films. But, you know, he had just done Star Wars. He was did, to do, did the Close Encounters. You know, he had a commitment to do The Empire Strikes Back. And I think, um, you know, you're talking about a period of time there. There's only six months, really, between uh, the the the, uh, the motion picture and uh, and Empire Strikes Back. So, you know, John Williams just wasn't available. Sure. And, um, you know, I think that that, yeah. But uh, every, everybody wanted that choice, and Wise was certainly familiar with. And Wise says what a great score that he had done for him previously. So. It's it's really interesting. I mean, the score is such a big part of that movie, you know, and it's such a great score. Um, but, like, there's, I mean, people, you know, oftentimes make fun of the motion picture for its, you know, extended sequences of nothing but music and visuals. Um, those are pretty much my favorite parts of the movie. And one of the things yeah. which, which I always kind of um, thought about in relation to, you know, the the filmmakers was Robert Wise obviously made a lot of I mean he made pretty much every genre but he made two of what are considered to be the best musicals of all time you know and it, that to me uh, you know kind of always um, signaled that he had a good sense of of the the use of music in film you know and and that he kind of knew what was up with with what he had or, or what he needed. And, and, and I'm, I'm just wondering how much you think that collaboration brought out, you know, what I, I personally think is, you know, the best in, in Goldsmith. Oh yeah. I mean, you know, you, Robert Wise did, you know, West Side Story. He did Sound of Music. He did, uh, the Sand Pebbles, which was the film he did with, uh, with Jerry Goldsmith. Um, I think in the sixties or so, I think 65, 66. And so they, you know, he, he, you know, so there you, you have wildly different, right? The, the sand pebbles is, is this sort of drama, you know, military type drama, the, you know, you get the sound of music and West side story. And so, you know, one of the things that amazes me about, uh, uh, the score for star Trek, the motion picture is that he, he only had 50% of the movie available to him when he scored. So really? he he was scoring an awful lot to scene missing, scene missing, scene missing, which is unusual, right? Most of the time they have a, at least a mostly finished product, at least a work print uh, of almost the whole film to, to to deal with. But because of the special effects, uh, you know, problems that existed on that film, among other production problems, you know, he's he's scoring this thing basically in the dark, being told by Wise, you know this is what's going to be on the screen and this is what you're going to be seeing. And so we need a, a music that evokes this idea or this feeling. And, uh, you know, that's, that's just a, a phenomenal. I mean, I, I can't imagine how a person can compose a score like that and have it be so incredible like the, the motion picture score is. But I think that that speaks to Wise's and, 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 and Goldsmith's ability to communicate to one another, their collaborative you know, a relationship, um, that they have. And there is a, there is a, almost a, you know, a, um, you know, it's what George Lucas says about Star Wars, right? That they're musicals, 
mm-hmm. that you can, li- you can not listen to the dialogue and st- because the music carries the emotion of the film. And I think uh, that's certainly true of, of the motion picture as well. And luckily, there are those large sequences, that six-minute, you know, enterprise introduction. You know, I, was it too long? I mean, we could debate that, but I think when, when you consider that fans had waited 10 years to see the enterprise and had never seen it like that before, and had never seen it that big and in that kind of quality and detail. And there is character stuff there. There is a man yeah. who's in love with his ship. And I mean, so it isn't just like, ooh, special effects. There's a, there, is a, there is an emotional and important element of the story that you get across in that sequence where, where you know, Kirk is literally like, you know, fawning over the ship as, as, as is the audience when they're seeing it. And that music is so incredible. Um, and, and that's what I think. And then really in, in a way, as, as with perhaps no other Star Trek film, the music is also a character, right? The use of that blaster beam that was created by Craig Huxley in the film, um, uh, who had played Peter Kirk in, uh, in the original show and, and, uh, Tommy Stearns, Tom, Thomas, Tommy Stearns, I think his name was in, and the children shall lead the child actor who grew up in and created the, the blaster beam. Um, you know, Goldsmith, is introduced to it by Huxley and figures out how to incorporate it into the film uh, along with Huxley and how to make it a character because that's the voice of Viger. It's also, you know, it, it, when, when Spock looks up and he's going through his colonar and you hear that blaster beam, it, 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 it becomes a character. It's like the, the music in Jaws, right? And it's the same idea. And so, uh, you know, the music in Star Trek motion picture is vital, vitally important to the story. And I think what makes the soundtrack so incredibly great is it has time to be a soundtrack where that is really all you hear um, is Goldsmith's music. And that's how important that, that music is to the film. Yeah. You know, I mean, what, what you're saying about the, uh, the music being uh, written before the scenes actually exist. I mean, this seems like a type of movie where you could get away with that more than most because it, it really does, um, like there are so, so many, you know, just like like extended sequences of just like the ship docking and that sort of thing that there there really aren't any like specific like story beats or action beats that you need mm-hmm. to hit. You really can just sort of like write a musical accompaniment and make it like the best musical piece that it needs to be and not necessarily, you know, set it specifically to picture. So, I mean, I guess they kind of lucked out in that sense but i think mm-hmm, the end sure. the end result i'm wondering like I, like i I'm, I'm wondering if the score is actually better because of that because he's not trying to to match it to anything which is specifically on screen and you know he just yeah. was saying like okay i'm just gonna write the hell out of this music you know and yeah i mean yeah well, i it, I, I I would say in a sense uh, because you'd mentioned Wise doing you know Sound of Music uh, and West Side Story and sort of the the musical connection, you know thinking about it like the the scene with the Enterprise and everything it there are moments that feel like the the moments in a musical where a character breaks out into song. I mean it doesn't you know sound like that necessarily, but you know it's like a love song when Kirk goes to the Enterprise for the first time and then there's a you know a uh, when they're going through the cloud it's it's this like these things can stand as vignettes the way that you can pluck uh, music of the night out of Phantom of the Opera I- individually from the rest of it. It works as a part of the whole, but you can just excise it 
uh, it, right out of there and it still works. Yeah. Which is why it becomes a, is, is able to become a theme, you know, in and of itself for, for next generation. And, uh, and, and, uh, you know, that's a really great point. I think, you know, the, the mentioning that scene, you know, the, many people have heard this story before, but uh, Jerry Goldsmith tells a story of the first time he plays the uh, the song eventually becomes known as the Enterprise on the on the soundtrack. But when he when he plays the music that that overlays Kirk's uh, reintroduction to the Enterprise, um, you know he was very very proud of what he composed and he played it for uh, Robert Wise and uh, Wise was not happy with it and. Um, he had trouble, Wise had trouble articulating why he didn't like it. Um, and so the next day he came to visit Jerry Goldsmith and, and, and really told him, you know, the, the, the problem is you don't have a, it's, there's no theme. And I, and, I, and I think in some ways when you look at Goldsmith's previous work, you know, Planet of the Apes, probably the best example, I think, of that. You know, he was a, a some people call him a modernist. I've always thought it was more postmodern, that stuff, you know, than modernist. But, but um, you know, he didn't work with the sort of the motifs and the, the, the way Williams works, right, where each character gets a theme and that theme gets restated through the whole thing. And you don't really get that in Planet of the Apes. It's more like an atonal, I mean, it's brilliant, the Planet of the Apes soundtrack, but it's very different kind of soundtrack. And when you, and even the Omen is that way, I think, Um and Alien, I think, is that way, too. Yeah. But when you get to Star Trek The Motion Picture, it's a more traditional type of score. And But I think he struggled with that a little bit. And he struggled in that there, there you know, he said he wrote a love theme, and that was the only theme he wrote, you know, Ilea's theme. But other than that, there was no theme in the, sto- the, the, the movie. And that was something that, you know, Robert Wise was used to dealing with themes and, you know, um, within his music. And, you know, each character has a song in his musicals or each character has a, you know, a piece of music that is associated with him and, and, and his other films. So, um, and, and that was something that, you know, uh, was a bit of a struggle for, for Goldsmith, but he talks about how he, you know, it took him about 10 days and he came back and he had the theme and he played him the, the new version of it, which is the version that we heard. Um, played it on piano and uh, Wise loved it. Thought it was, you know, so why did you do that in the first time? You know, the first, <laughs> you know, and um, but I think in many ways this, the Star Trek the motion picture. Getting back to what you guys were saying about the, the, you know, being so expansive and allowing him that freedom and not necessarily having to be tied to an image, um, is a really great point to think about because perhaps that because of that that score gave him the freedom to get into the concept of themes a little bit more within his work, you know, using a character theme and then restating that throughout the, throughout the film. Speaking of themes, uh, the, the next time that we see Jerry Goldsmith's music is in something that he wasn't even involved with on a, on a personal level, and that's uh, in The Next Generation with the theme for the show. I mean, we, we talked last week about the reasons why he, or a couple weeks ago, about the reasons why he didn't come back for Star Trek Two. It seemed like they were mainly budgetary, but also as a way of sort of separating uh, Star Trek Two from Star Trek The Motion Picture. But with a new generation, I guess, came an old theme. And that's something which I always thought was kind of strange. And I mean, it's one of those things where 
you know, I was probably familiar with that piece as the next generation theme before I was familiar with it as the motion picture theme. But what was the reasoning behind using the motion picture theme for the next generation? Well, yeah, you know, it's funny you mentioned the budget too. I, I, for fun, I looked it up uh, today um, since I knew we were going to be talking and the budget for Star Trek II's music when it was a movie of the week, which was how it was originally going to be produced was, a, was $58,000 total. So that would have included the orchestra and the composer. And then when they moved to a movie, the budget became about 235000 But that was for the composer, the budget, you know, everything for the, for the, for the orchestra, the whole thing. So, you know, that wouldn't, <laughs> it would not have, you know, that wouldn't have even paid Jerry Goldsmith, I would imagine. You know, um, <laughs> I don't know for a fact, but I'm sure his price tag was not, 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 and rightly so, uh, was not because of what he brings to a project was not going to be that amount. But anyway, um, yeah, what had happened was, you know, there was a theme for the the, the for the, the next generation that was composed by Dennis McCarthy. In fact, it's on the uh, available on the soundtrack of the of Encounter at Farpoint as early as, early as 1987, and it's uh, kind of a, almost a superheroish um, kind of theme. It would play well as a theme for a for a, you know a DC or Marvel character, and um, Rick Berman really was the person that was instrumental in pushing for the idea of using reusing the goldsmith uh theme and um because he, he had a fascination with goldsmith he thought that that score was a breakthrough score for star trek and that that was that was in a way at, at least as identifiable um at, with star trek as as you know Alexander Courage's theme was. And so, uh, and he was, and Rick Byrne was not inclined to use the Alexander Courage music. He did not like the music from the original series. Um, at least to not necessarily say he didn't like it, but he thought its time had passed, to put it that way. And so in the 60s, it may have been good, but not in the 80s. And so, um, Berman was very instrumental in bringing bringing that music there, and then you know Dennis McCarthy then marrying those two themes, bringing the Alexander Courage theme and the and the Jerry Goldsmith themes together to produce the Next Generation. It's funny because when Star Trek V came out, uh, not to jump ahead a little bit, but when Star Trek V came out, Jerry Goldsmith did talk about that there was confusion among some fans hmm. as to why they were using the Next Generation theme in <laughs> Star Trek V. <laughs> Because there were there were fans who did maybe had never seen the motion picture, you know, or were not fans of the original Star Trek, you know, and and, and never watched them. So, um, but you know, the, the whole Rick Berman Jerry Goldsmith thing when when they did first contact, Jerry Goldsmith was a line item in that budget. They were going to get Jerry Goldsmith as long as he was willing to do it. They were going to pay him, and they were going to make sure that he was on that film. Berman really wanted. Jerry Goldsmith to do the music. So you can see, and you see that back even starting with the Next Generation TV show. Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, I mean, I guess I can see Berman's reasoning, but it is interesting, you know, and, and it kind of uh, makes a lot more sense now in terms of everything, you know, when you realize that Berman is, is such a huge Goldsmith fan. Um, but I guess, you know, before we, we move on to the other series, you know, looking at Star Trek V, uh, that's an interesting case. Again, a score which I, which I love, 
but it's an interesting case in that it's the one time really aside from maybe like Star Trek 3 where they take a piece of the score and like adapt it into like sort of a new theme it's it's the one time where they kind of go back to something which had existed before and and use it as the theme again which is weird in that there's three movies in between where it's not used but what what was the the reasoning behind that first off getting goldsmith back and then secondly him not writing a new theme like he kind of did with the next gen movies but using you know what he had done before in in motion picture well you know jerry goldsmith is always sort of the guy that you know you always hear like oh he was originally offered he was so you know jerry goldsmith was originally offered superman and couldn't do it and john williams got it you know and eventually he would go do supergirl you know which was a great soundtrack for for you know in, in contrast to the film, um, <laughs> but uh, although Helen Slater I thought was great, but um, and you get to see the old Comiskey Park in that movie. Yeah, I mean, actually, I, you know, it's, it's a sweet film. You know, it's sweet. It's it's a cute film. Let's not go overboard here. So, Star Trek Five. Uh, he comes to Star Trek Five because you know when you take a look at two, right? Two was a matter of him not coming back because of budget. Uh, three was because two had been so successful and two, three was literally a next day sequel. And so they wanted to keep the music consistent. And then four, um, was, you know, Leonard Nimoy bringing in the composer that he had been friends with, uh, Leonard Rosenham for many years. So, you know, and, and a good decision. I mean, it was Oscar nominated and it was, you know, it, it was, it was the right kind of score. And in some ways, but there was always this sort of thing, well, is Jerry Goldsmith going to do another Star Trek film? Is Jerry Goldsmith going to do another Star Trek film? And uh, by the time you got to five, and you have now you have a new director, um, if not new to Star Trek, but you have a new director, and you have, you know, Harv Bennett, and the budget is a little bit bigger um, in contrast to Star Trek II, certainly. Uh, they're able to afford Jerry Goldsmith. So that was really a decision by uh, by Harv Bennett and... Uh, William Shatner to bring bring back uh, Jerry Goldsmith. Jerry Goldsmith, you know, talks about he 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 enjoyed Star Trek. He enjoyed it. It's optimistic view. He enjoyed writing the music in that world, and it was different, right? This is Star Trek is a unique type of science fiction property. This is a guy who's writing the Omen, right? He's writing, um, uh, you know, Alien. And a lot of the science fiction films, Planet of the Apes, are yeah. are, are sort of pessimistic science fiction. Uh, films in a way and so this is a you know a chance for him to be optimistic with his music and it was really his decision to bring back you know at the the two themes right the the primarily two themes the klingon theme um and the um you know the sort of the neck of the, the motion picture main theme and to weave those into the star trek five to give it a certain continuity um with with, you know, to say this is part of the, the you know, these these films are related to one another. You know, I, my favorite thing with Five is his decision on how to score the comedy uh, aspects of it, because, of course, there's, there, by studio edict, there was comedy written into Star Trek Five because they had thought that that was the main reason that Star Trek Four had done well, was that it was comedic. And so um, he chooses not to score the comedy scenes, which I thought was great. Mm-hmm. Um except for a very, very brief um, bit of music um, uh, when Kirk is talking about his chair. You know, I say, we said, when he says, I miss my old chair, there's music over that. Um, and that little, little bit when, when Sulu is talking about how he's never done that before with the ship. Other than that, every comedy beat within the film has no music whatsoever. And I thought that, that was a very interesting 
choice by him and the right choice by him because otherwise it gets to be kind of um you know like a like a like it is a sitcom rather than meant to be a funny moment within the drama you know yeah yeah so i mean it's it's kind of weird you know when talking about it now and saying how there's you know a little bit of room in the budget for goldsmith at number 5 and then you know number 6 you would think that they would go all out since it's the 25th anniversary and yet they didn't have enough money to to pay for him to come back for that one if i mean i don't even know if if meyer would want him necessarily but you know well, I think yeah. I mean, I, Nicholas Meyer. Uh, you know, I, I certainly think he ad, he admires Jerry Goldsmith. There's several pieces where you know I have documents where he talks about you know how great Jerry Goldsmith is, and it really was just a matter of budget. You know, um, just real fast to go back to five. I did want to mention that that uh, that "Moon's a Window to Heaven" song that's on there uh, was what the music and lyrics were by Jerry Goldsmith, uh, and John Bettis and Jerry Goldsmith. It was, the music was done by Hiroshima and, uh, mm-hmm. Jerry Goldsmith said how thrilled, you know, he said the song was never popular, but he did, you know, it was played on the radio and he said for a film composer that that was one of the biggest thrills of his life that he got to hear a song on a radio, you know? <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, Star Trek six, you know, the, the, the Star Trek six, the budget was, the same as Star Trek five it was $27 million and there was no time, uh, to make that film whatsoever. You know, by contrast, you know, return of the Jedi was made for $33 million in 1983. Right. Yeah. So you're, you know, it's talking seven, eight years before, um, you know, you have a film being made for about, you know, more $6 million more than, uh, than, than Star Trek six is being made. So, you know, and all, of course, all the all, all the costs had gone up. All the actors had gone up. Uh, all the special effects costs had gone up. Um, you know, er, er, you know, all the writing costs had gone up. The set costs, the costume costs, everything had gone up. So, um, it was really a matter of of of, of budget with Star Trek VI uh, that he wasn't brought back. But you know, it it it's okay because Cliff Eidelman's score is really incredible. You know, uh, for Star Trek VI, it's a it's it's very different, but of course, all these guys are influenced by. In some way, he's he's sort of there anyway, right? I mean, John, Ron Jones from the Next Generation, Jay Chataway, who did 183 episodes of Star Trek, um, you know, uh, Jared uh, James Horner. Um, they've all they've all talked about the influence that Jerry Goldsmith had on them. So, you know, at least in spirit, um, his influence is seen within a lot of the Star Trek films, even if he's not directly scoring them. Yeah. So moving back, I guess, I mean, I guess the only, the only other thing which is, is kind of interesting is that he did not do the music for generations. It seems like, especially given what yeah. came afterwards and now knowing, you know, what, what we know about Rick Berman and his love for Goldsmith, it's kind of weird. And I know that there are a lot of people on generations who were just kind of like ported over from the show but it's kind of weird that they didn't try to get him for that. Yeah, you know, I mean, that I, if I have my 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 information straight in my head, I believe that was just a scheduling uh, yeah. problem. And Which, yeah, and and 
which is what happened with Deep Space Nine, right? He was asked to come up with a theme for Deep Space Nine. Yeah. Um, and and he just and he would have done it. You know, he said he would do it, but he, but he couldn't because he was working on another project at the time. So I think that was just a matter of timing. Um, Generations really was, you know, uh, not necessarily a rushed production, but it was rushed in the sense of going straight from next gen ending of, you know, all good things straight into that film and, and, you know, having to literally shut down a television show at the same time you were gearing up, you know, like the next day, a movie. Um, And uh, so there wasn't necessarily the kind of leisurely time uh, that you might hope, you know, hope to have at the pre-production phases with those kinds of things. So, um, it would, that was really just a matter of, you know, not, not having him available and, and but wanting to make certain that he was available and, and work around that for the first contact, which is ultimately what they had to do, which I guess we could talk about in a few minutes. Yeah. I mean, just, you know, I never, cause, cause I was, I was in it, you know, I mean, that was like, when I just started becoming a fan, so I never really thought about it, you know, but the idea, I mean, just now, just not like, as of, like right now thinking about this, like the idea that they were like, yeah, let's, let's come out with a movie like, what is it? Six months after, you know, this TV show ends. It's like, yeah, that's a good idea. Let's do that. Were they insane? Yeah. Were they just straight <laughs> up insane? What? Yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, um, you know, when you think about that, I know, I know, uh, Patrick Stewart has talked about that, just the exhaustion of, cause that next gen ending was in itself a movie, Yeah, you know, I mean, all good things was, was an hour and a half of television, an hour and 25 minutes worth of television that was as good as a feature film with pretty amazing special effects, a very complex production, especially for Patrick Stewart, who, I mean, every you know, five minutes and that is switching between, you know, young Picard and old Picard and, you know, middle ground Picard. And then just the, the amount of dialogue and activity that he had in that script. Um, and then to roll over into the, to the movie. And then, you know, you're just thinking about all the, the, the behind the scenes people having to do the same thing is, is just truly incredible. But you know, that, that there's a certain amount of wanting to get it out at that at this time and, you know, having to, to do the timing, the, you know, the timing aspect of it, because when the show's ending, right, you can do the promotion for the film's beginning. And I think the worry was, you know, let the show end and like every television show the next day after it's over, nobody talks about it anymore. Yeah. And, uh, but yet if you have this film looming on the horizon, then it doesn't become like sex in the city, you know, where it's like, you know, <laughs> Nobody talks about it, you know. Just a, a quick note: like my memory might be lying to me, but wasn't wasn't uh, production affected by? Wasn't there an earthquake that affected production at the same time, or am I, is my memory misfiring? Hmm. Well, there was the one I know. I, I know, like when they were shooting, I, I think it must have been season seven of of Next Gen. It was when they were shooting the the episode where they all devolve. That that there was an earthquake going on there. So there, okay. That could have I, that could have bled over because that the, was season seven, right? Because because my memory is that they originally wanted Nimoy to come back too, but he said he wanted to rewrite something on it. They and they said no, and then they wound up getting delayed for some reason anyway. And it was like one of those things where it was like, I, I I'm probably at this point it's just like a rumor that I heard, you know, sometime through the years. But it's it stayed nestled in the brain. 
Yeah, no, no. I, well, I do know that. Yeah, for absolutely a fact that uh, Nimoy was asked to, to direct, um, and his ref- both, of course, act in and direct uh, generations were refused to act in it because um, he didn't see the part as essential and thought that Spock had been given an appropriate goodbye in Star Trek VI. And they really, you know, other than Kirk, really none of the original series characters would have been um, essential to, to that story in generations, although, you know, they were, but they were all in the first version of the script, all seven. And, uh, and then he would direct it. And, but he was, you know, he was understandably so used to having, you know, coming in at the start of a Star Trek film and helping to craft and shape the story. Um, and uh, especially with four and six and, um, you know, he wasn't going to be a, just a director for hire who was given a script and you shoot it. And, and you know, so, you know, there was and there was a little more studio control over that production because it was the first one being being done with Rick Berman and so on. And so they, there was a little more tight, tight control on that. And, did, did, you know, this having to be done this way or that way, whereas, you know, once you have a successful film, which generation was, then you, you, you said training wheels are off and you're allowed to have more choice and more more freedom with it with the sequels i know we're talking about a movie that goldsmith had nothing to do with but you know generations is generations it's ground zero for me so i'm fascinated by anything that has to do with generations so uh and dennis mccarthy's music i mean you know every time we lose a lose a you know lose jerry goldsmith being able to do something somebody comes in and does something i mean dennis mccarthy's theme to to Deep Space Nine, it's beautiful, um, and he has a lot of great music in 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 in, uh, in generation. So, you know, at least when they, if 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 you know, if Goldsmith isn't there, you, I think you know you're left with some really great music. So, it's not like we. I don't think there's ever been a bad Star Trek soundtrack. Yeah, my 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 wife walked down the aisle to the Deep Space Nine theme. So, yeah, not not too bad. Beautiful. Yeah. Um. But then there was Voyager, where he did come back. And uh, to me, I mean, I think that this is the best theme of, of all of the shows. I, I think that it's it's one of the best themes in, in TV history, you know, and uh, one of the best opening credit sequences in TV history as well. Uh, so he, he, they did finally, you know, everything aligned, and they, and they got him to come back for, for Voyager. So what, how, how did that happen? Yeah, that was, you know, he was he was asked to do the theme for Voyager and he said, you know, he would, that he would certainly be happy to do it and he wrote it very quickly, he said. Um he wanted it to be a a, a more, you know, a gentle theme kind of along the lines that uh you get with um, you know, Kirk climbing the mountain, that type of, you know, a lot of his stuff, you know, I and this is in John Williams too and and I think they're both brilliant in the way that they do that. Um where they juxtapose, it could be a horrific image or it could be a action adventure image, but they juxtapose it almost with the opposite kind of music, right? So John Williams does that a lot in Revenge of the Sith, where you have really horrible things happening on screen when the when the Jedi's are being killed, and there's this incredibly beautiful music over it, you know, or Schindler's List, where you got real world horrors being shown to you, and there's this music that's just, if if you didn't know it was associated with Schindler's List, and you just heard it playing, and it had no connection with that film, you go, oh, what a beautiful piece of music. Um, and, and so they overlay those on these sort of horrific, either fictional or, 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 or real images, um, 
in in the films and um he does that a lot you know he you know first contact's a great example of that and so it's 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 also in insurrection and and nemesis and so on and and i think voyagers you know your the inclination is like here's a guy who the, the theme to next generation is bombastic right and just like really heroic and, and and but with because of the percussion that's in there but voyager is a much more gentle heroicism it's still heroic and it's but it's it's more noble you know, um, and uh, and it's it's a, it is a feminine theme. I mean, it's a very soft, gentle, feminine theme. The notes are further apart from one another than they are. They're not as aggressive as Next Generation is, um, yet it's still noble and heroic, just like Janeway. You know, and I think that it's a perfect theme for her show. Um, it's a perfect theme for that ship, which is also a feminine ship, right? It's got curves. That ship, you know, uh, uh, Rick Sternbach's Voyager. So. Um, you know, and then Dan Curry puts these beautiful images when he designs the opening credits to it. I mean, it, it is it is an amazing that I, I really I, you know, if they want to give me a 50th anniversary present, I would love to see Voyager on Blu-ray, and I would love to see that opening credit in HD. Um, yeah, screw yeah, screw Voyager, add, just just put that opening credit sequence in HD, and you know, yeah, yeah, just give me that, and I'll buy the, you know, I'll buy just that if that's all you got, you know. Um, <laughs> But you know it's uh, it's a brilliant theme. It wins an Emmy for um, you know best theme that year, and uh, and rightly so. Yeah, it is it is an amazing theme, and that sequence is amazing. I mean, that was, yeah. I mean, not to take anything away from Voyager, but that was always my favorite part of every episode was watching the, the opening credit sequence. Uh, um, I, I have I have I there there's a memory I just want to share. My uh, my first child, um, she was. Uh, First uh, four or five months of her life, I would take a half day off and you know spend the afternoons with her. And um, Voyager was on was in syndication, and she would fall asleep for her afternoon nap to the Voyager theme song. And so I have these very wonderful memories of like that theme is locked in my head, and it it always lulled her to sleep. And uh, so I think that speaks to the beauty of it that it's gentle enough to let a young child drift off. <laughs> It, it, it's funny you guys borrow from borrow from each of you. Uh, our wedding, when we walked in at our wedding, was to the Voyager theme. Oh uh, yeah, and uh, we, yeah, the 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 attendants and everything walked into the uh, to the uh, throne room music from Star Wars, and then we walked into <laughs> the Voyager theme. Awesome. And, uh, but it's funny that uh, John mentioned that about his uh, about his child. Uh, our our child, our our son, Nicky, used to go to bed to the Enterprise theme. Oh, yeah. oh, cool! Uh, you know, and I had I had to loop that thing onto a tape, and it was all that was on like a ninety-minute tape over and over again. And, if, and when it stopped, he would wake up. So the joys the, the joys of having a baby, but uh, uh, that is a beautiful theme. What a it is a great lullaby. What a great memory! Uh, great memory to have. Yeah, yeah. So so that was his last time doing uh something in on the small screen for Star Trek but he wasn't finished with the big screen and after generations he he rounded out the the next gen movies and did did all three first contact insurrection and nemesis uh so so how how do they get him back I mean I guess Well first contact was yeah first contact was uh was uh um, you know, Rick Berman wanting to have him, uh, Jonathan Frakes knowing the value of having him. Um, and, uh, but really Rick Berman, 
pursuing that, making that it was literally, he was uh, Jonathan Frake says his name was a line item in the budget. It wasn't, com- you know, every budget I have for Star Trek says music. That budget is, you know, <laughs> Jerry Goldsmith, you know, it was, they were going to get your Goldsmith. And, and one of the things they had to do was make an adjustment. He was also doing the ghost in the darkness around the same time. And that, ran longer and there were problems and so he there is 20 minutes of that score that isn't jerry goldsmith um that's his very talented uh, son joel um who came in and did most mostly the borg stuff uh although jerry goldsmith kind of sets the tone for what the borg music is going to be his son's really the one that composed the borg music and um and that was that was an a, that was a you know, initially the producers like, "Hey, we want Jerry Goldsmith. We, you know, we're, we're we're paying for Jerry Goldsmith. We want Jerry Goldsmith." And uh, they were a little skittish with this idea, but it was the only way for really for him to be able to, to finish the film and to do the film. Um, and so, uh, but they weren't necessarily convinced right away that Jerry Joel Goldsmith was the right choice to do you know twenty minutes out of a seventy minute soundtrack. And uh, so what. Jerry Goldsmith did, which was brilliant, is he they, he plays for the producers um, and the, the the powers that be the opening Borg, you know the the Picard, you know uh, dream sequence that opens up the eye pull out scene that opens up the film, and with this really creepy Borg music and everything, and they love it. They're like, oh, that's fantastic, and he says, great, that was my son that did that. <laughs> And they said, they said, fine, sold. You got, you, you, you got it. So, um, you know, uh, and, and they, they talk about the, the, really the, the, the pride, but, you know, not, not unprofessional, not showing it necessarily when his son was conducting or whatever and compose, composing and conducting the music that, uh, but that he, but that Jerry Goldsmith had a big smile on his face the whole time, you know, being able to work with his son. And, uh, and they're really, I mean, the Borg music is really great in that film. So Joel Goldsmith, you know, contributed a great deal to that score, but Jerry Goldsmith, I mean, that music, um, you know, again, you get a restatement of the next generation theme, but that, that music that he plays, that juxtaposition of the horror, really what is in essence a zombie film, yet has this incredibly beautiful music. And when that ship lands at the end, the Vulcan ship and first contact is made, I don't know how... And, you know, you can keep a dry eye the first time that you see that or the 10th time that you see that. It's such a beautiful scene that where the emotion really is carried by that music. And um, John Eves, who designed did a lot of the design work on First Contact, designed the Borg Sphere, designed the Vulcan ship. Uh, you know, when he designs, he designs to Jerry Goldsmith music. Mm. And he said one of the one of the thrills of his life is to have that Jerry Goldsmith music over his ship design um, in, in First Contact. And uh, just absolutely beautiful. And then, of course, that does get reused in... Uh, uh, in uh, It's so iconic, it gets reused in Enterprise when they do the Mirror Universe episodes. And they start off with a little bit of a different kind of First Contact uh, that explains why the Mirror Universe is the way that it is in Enterprise. And uh, they reuse the Jerry Goldsmith music from that. So we do get to hear him a little bit in uh, uh, Enterprise, although it's not a new, it's not, he didn't compose anything new for that. Yeah, you know, that that, that Borg music, and, and I mean, I to, to me anyway, I don't know if it's, 
I don't know what it is exactly, but of the three next-gen scores, the first contact score seems to be the one that stands above the others. I don't know if it was just that he was inspired by better visuals or what, or better story or what, but um, the thing that always struck me about the Borg music is that it it melds so well with the sound effects that you can, it's one of those cases where you, you almost can't tell where the music begins and the sound effects end. You know, you know what I mean? Um, yeah, it's, it, yeah, definitely. Which I think is really cool. You know and I mean? I guess when you're talking about sound design and everything, I mean, that's ideal. That's an ideal scenario. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's a pretty awesome score. Um, yeah, yeah, it's a perfect marriage of his sort of postmodern Planet of the Apes era and his post, you know, uh, Star Trek the motion picture, more traditional, um, you know, scores. I think like the Borg were, were, were right up his alley in a way because they allowed him to bring in that electronic music and the lack of, you know, the use of sound, sound effects as music, um, and and it's really important part of uh, of what make the Borg terrifying. Yeah, yeah, it is. So insurrection, he kind of, uh, I don't know. It seems like takes a a little bit of a a step back musically, you know, kind of like throttles back a bit, you know. And it's not the obviously the the movie doesn't support the intensity of of the first contact score either. But this is is much more mellow, you know when it comes to insurrection. And, uh, I mean, I guess that's, that speaks to his, his ability to adapt to the material or whatever, but it does seem like one of his lesser works. But then again, I guess it also seems like one of the the lesser or maybe the least movie (laughs) in the Star Trek franchise. That's a good one. Mike is trying to dance around his real feelings. I think. <laughs> well, I, you know, I I love insurrection, and I and and I am I'm a I'm a a champion for it, uh, knowing that there are some uh, problems with it. But I think, you know, it's the only Star Trek film that does not take place on Earth, um, or at least in orbit of Earth. Um, for part of or for the entirety or near the entirety of a film. So it, it really is truly, you know, going where no man has gone before. Um, and it's very much like an, like an episode, which I'm okay with. You know, I think that that's, you know, people have always been like, oh, well, that's not good. Star Trek Three is bad because it's like an episode. Well, I, you know, the episodes are the source material. Isn't that what you like? You know, um, that being said, I know why some people may not like Insurrection, and I, re- I respect that, you know. But I I think from a mute, from the music uh, point of view, um, I, it's another example of kind of him being an ingenious in a way because there's an uh, that that soundtrack is an awful, uh, awfully synthesized. Actually, it's not awful; it's awfully synthesized, um, which is totally in stark contrast to the Baku, right? So there's a lot of electronics in that soundtrack more so than I think even First Contact, um, and and. And it's an interesting juxtaposition to put that uh, over what is basically space Amish, you know, which is what the Baku are. <laughs> and, um, and the use of that electronic music that in, in some ways there's almost like a, like a, I always think that that soundtrack could be in a Frankenstein movie, that, 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 especially when they do the Sona music, you know. And, uh, but even over the Baku, 
I mean, the, the, of course, the beginning theme is very beautiful and lyrical and, and, and appropriate and everything. But a lot of that, the stuff all in the sort of center of the film when they're on the planet and the action sequences uh, as the Baku are escaping um, is very electronic in its, or, its, its orientation. And I think that that's kind of a brilliant thing to do because it makes it interesting to watch that because you do have that. Yeah, I think that's really one of the big themes of the film, right? It opens up with data this mechanical person, um, you know, and, and, and when you listen to the Starfleet people talking, you know, it's like the worst bureaucratic, you know, conversation you could imagine, you know, and, you know, it's all just numbers and they're passing back the pads between them and the Sona and then the, when they're in the duck blind and there's no humanity um, in their conversation. It's all functionality. And then, Here's Data, who's this mechanical being who comes into this world of the Baku, and they're, you know, they're they're more, you know, salt of the earth people, and more, you know, obviously have chosen to abandon technology. And I think that that's a big, you know, obviously that's one of the big themes of the film. And he plays with that theme um, with his music, where he's got sort of the, the beautiful lyrical Baku theme, but then set against the Baku action sequences, which are very electronic. So maybe that'll convince one person that they like insurrection. I, I think I think that you argue very eloquently for the film. I feel <laughs> that you do argue very eloquently for it. I, like I, I'm not going to say that it's a bad movie, but I am going to say that it's the worst Star Trek movie. So take that as you will. I, a, and <laughs> it, mark your calendars. Mike and I agree. On All right. The movie. High five. There you go. It, All right. High five. Boom. Finally happened. <laughs> All right, so let's move on to what a lot of people consider to be the worst Star Trek movie, but not us apparently, <laughs> and that's Star Trek Nemesis. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess it, it, it only makes sense, and, and this is a, a weird movie. I don't know what exactly was going on, but certainly the perception that I had as a fan and hearing about the movie and actually even seeing the movie is that they were like, you know what? We're going to go out on top. We are going to throw everything in. We've got a great editor directing this. Yeah, it's worked before, whatever. And, uh, you know, let's just do this. And it only makes sense that, that Jerry Goldsmith comes back for for this one. And um, I, I think that his score um, is definitely better than his score for Insurrection, even though not, not nearly as good as First Contact. But, uh, yeah, I don't know. What was going on with Nemesis? That's a loaded question. Well, Nemesis is a Nemesis is. A, <laughs> I like Nemesis too. Um, uh, Nemesis was, uh, uh, you know, a a film that had was done um, because the actors wanted it to be done, and uh, they they sacrificed the actors sacrificed. Uh, uh, you know, relatively speaking, in the world, the real world, but they sacrificed. Um, and took pay cuts and and uh, and to make this film happen, and uh, because they they wanted there to be a final you know film and, and another film and um, uh, and I and I think that that's great that they that they were willing to do that you know and um, you know the there's a lot of what could have been with Nemesis. Uh, the initial feeling uh, Rick Berman had wanted you know either Jonathan Frakes or LeVar Burton to direct the film. 
um, more more so sort of LeVar Burton, not because of anything with Jonathan Frakes, but that he had had two films. And LeVar Burton, of course, was incredibly talented as well and uh, had done 29 episodes of, uh, eventually will have done 29 episodes of Star Trek. You know, so he was well-versed and was a talented director. And, um, you know, they had a great script by John Logan. If you, if you ever get a chance to read the whole script, anybody out there, I would really recommend you that you do it. It's very involved. It's, it's about twice the length of the film that you see, um, at least 45 minutes, uh, perhaps I should say, uh, you know, an additional 45 minutes and, um, a lot more about the Romulans, a lot more about Shinzon, um, a, a lot more character stuff in there, all of which has to get edited out because a two two hour and forty five minute or two hour fifty minute Star Trek film just wasn't going to happen. And um, you know, said so a very they had a good script, and you know, I think Stuart Baird, uh, who had worked with Jerry Goldsmith several times before um, on the same films, uh, not as directors, but but as a Stuart Baird in his role of editor, um, you know, exceptionally talented editor. And a good director, but not a good Star Trek director in the sense of at least that was the cast impression that he really, I mean, you can have a director who doesn't understand Star Trek as long as they get, they understand, in other words, that they're not familiar with Star Trek, but that they understand Star Trek is, I guess, what I'm trying to say, that they understand the heart of it and what it's about. And you get somebody like Nicholas Meyer, right, who is not a fan of Star Trek, but comes in and understands those characters, can make them speak and and, and the way that he writes and, and so on. So, um, you know, but Stuart Baird, you know, I guess was, was very removed and, and, you know, from Star Trek in such a way that he thought, you know, Geordi was a, was a robot supposedly. So, um, you know, that was, that's, that's a problem, you know? So, uh, in terms, at least that's what the actors are saying. So, um, you know, Nemesis suffered from that. It's, it, it, it you know, it, those types of, of, of what could have been and editings and things like that, that, that had to be done to it. But this music, the soundtrack um, is in many ways, another, you know, example of that juxtaposition theme within his music, right. Where you've got, um, you know, sometimes very, you know, scary or horrific things happening on screen over, you know, or sad things happening on screen and overlaying it with a sort of different kind of music. Um, Actually, my favorite piece of, music in in uh well there's two in uh in uh, nemesis is and neither one was um in, well one of them wasn't included in the original release but is is on the more expanded edition that came out a few years ago um one is the the one that was not originally uh, available was the kind of um build up where picard walks around his ship um right before the battle and he's sort of uh, speaking with his crew and they have this beautiful like almost military music uh that that plays over that scene and then what was included and it's just incredibly amazing piece of music and it's only in the end credits uh it is not anywhere else in the soundtrack there's a beautiful piece of music that he puts into the end credits this lovely theme and it's like wow my gosh you could have that could have been the whole, you know, the whole solitary, beautiful. Um, and, uh, you know, there's great stuff in the Nemesis soundtrack. When that, when the ship, the ships collide and yeah. the battle music that is in the film, it's very adventuresome and very heroic. And uh, I think it's a good soundtrack. You know, it's a second to last soundtrack. His last soundtrack was a, was a Looney Tunes movie. Um, but, 
you know, it was his it was his sort of last action live action uh, adventure film soundtrack, and uh, you know, it's uh, it 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 has a lot it has a lot in it. Uh, I think that elevates the film too. So you know, and then this and that soundtrack, there is themes, and you really see that full realization of that concept in that film where Shinzon has a theme and Data and Before have a theme together, and and uh, just a lot of great. There, there's a lot of great music within there, and I'm really glad they did the the two disc, you know, the expanded edition because a lot of it we didn't get to hear on the original um, release of that in 2002. Yeah, yeah. All right, so that was his last, his last Star Trek movie, and uh, yeah, I didn't realize that it was so close to to being the last of his career, but I guess that kind of makes sense. And uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's crazy. I mean, he has had such a. I mean, you, everything, everyone, I think, kind of just gravitates towards the motion picture soundtrack, and then, you know, there's Voyager as well. But you kind of miss how he sort of defined the next generation era in one way or another and it's it's pretty impressive and i mean i I think like like i said last time you know his he he's he's so good i mean like that that score for the motion picture i I think rivals you know john williams when john williams is at his best so Yeah, yeah absolutely he's 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 great and and i mean and well i mean we'll talk about this next week but his score for Alien is freaking amazing. I mean, just brilliant. Anyway, yeah, we'll get to yeah. that next week. Yeah, Brandon, <laughs> Brandon, Brandon Bragg uh, talks about how he, he listened to that soundtrack for Alien again and again and again and again and again, you know? And it maybe had some kind of uh, an effect on uh, him, uh, you know, creatively in a way. And, and again, that sort of inspiration into Star Trek, you know? Sure. Even when Jerry Goldsmith around. Oh, I mean, yeah. he's really the voice of He's the voice of Star of, of Star Trek. You know, he, he he is. You know, there's there's to me there's two things that that are iconic with Star Trek that you could you could probably show or 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 introduce to somebody who has very little, if any, knowledge of Star Trek, and they would go, "Oh, that's that Star Trek or Star Wars or whatever." They 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 would know kind of what it's from and and that would be of course Spock, right? You could show anybody a picture of Spock and they know that Star Trek. And the other is to play them Jerry Goldsmith's theme from the the motion picture slash next generation. And I think people can go, I yeah, okay, that's Star Trek. And uh, you know, those are the only two things I can think of that maybe the and the Enterprise maybe. Yeah. Um, where, mm-hmm. where, where, even if someone has no familiarity with it, they will associate that with it because that that music is was just was is, it has been and 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 continues to be at, you know constantly played on reruns of Next Generation, uh, you know, in the Star Trek films, you know, it's played in or in orchestra halls who play that music. Um, you know, it's played over and over. It's never going, and rightfully so, never going to go away. And I think that that's, you know, a wonderful legacy for him. Yeah. Well, well, thank you very much for for doing this, John. You yeah, know, I mean, thank it's, you. it's great to kind of hear um, the the history behind all of this. You know, instead of just us blathering on about our opinions or whatever. <laughs> um, but yeah, now okay, so we just had 
the the big Vegas convention last week where you know you, you gave a ton of presentations and everything. But what, what else do you have coming up in the in the not too distant future? Uh, well, we're going to be doing um, in uh, coming up uh, uh, right around the anniversary of uh, Leonard Nimoy's passing in February. We've been asked to do a two-hour kind of presentation looking at his whole life, and we're going to be doing that at some of the local libraries around the area. Uh, and right now we're just starting to do our research for the next um, set of convention um, presentations we're going to do. Uh, we're going to be taking a look at um, the guest characters, the big guest characters of the original series for the 50th anniversary. How did they, what was the original conceptions of characters like Harry Mudd, the Horta, I don't want to reveal all of them, but then we got some surprise ones in there. Um, you know, Khan, Marla, how did they start out? How did they wind up? Um, that's going to be one of the big areas we're doing research on. Um, we'll be looking at the uh, doing research on the original collectibles. Uh, again, a sort of 50-year look at the original series collectibles. Um, and then we're going to be starting working on a presentation uh, for libraries and for the conventions on the making of Star Trek IV, which is going to be having its uh, 30th anniversary next year. Yes. So... Um, and uh, lots of good stuff with that and looking at the various versions of the scripts and how the story changed and the making of it. And uh, um, we're just starting to do that research now. So we got those three areas are going to be our big, our big look, uh, big ideas for the next year. Excellent. Excellent. Very cool. Well, yeah. Well, well, thank thank you again for joining us. You know, it's, it's, it's really great. And uh, it's, it's very educational for us all you know including the two of us for sure so yeah. and, and i know that our, our listeners uh always enjoy hearing you uh tell us about the history of trek as well so anytime you want to come back you're you're more than welcome to thanks guys and thanks for continuing you guys do a great job shining the you know the light in the jeffrey's tube you know to to, <laughs> to peek to peek at these areas of star trek that you know really deserve a lot more attention so thank you for what you guys do Oh, thanks. Oh, thank you. Well, that was fun talking to John about Jerry Goldsmith. You know, John, he's very knowledgeable about these things. Uh, I was... always feel smarter after we talk to him. I really do. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Uh, it, it's, you know, we, we just went, we just came back from this convention in Vegas, and John was there, and he was giving all these talks. And it was crazy because he was, like, scheduled to do, like, four talks. And yet... Every time I went into a room, he was there talking. It's just like, what? Wait, what? You know, like I go into the thing and they're like, Adam Nimoy is going to be here talking about Leonard Nimoy. And I go into the room and there's John up on stage with Larry Nemechek and they're just talking about <laughs> Leonard Nimoy. I'm like, okay. Or like Grace Lee Whitney. Here's a, you know, and I go in there and there's John talking about Grace Lee Whitney. It's just, you know, he's just there just talking. That's, always. yeah, that's. Uh, you know that that's really cool, though. I mean, that's such a. Uh, it's so kind of him to you know then take the time with us, and and it's you know, I'll go ahead and say it. We really appreciate it. We do. Yes, we do, and we're not the only ones. Our listeners appreciate it too. You know, I, I sent this this note to to John, uh, but you know, I figure I, I can I can read it here as well, just because it, it's pretty cool. Amy from from the the Babel conference, uh, who is is a listener to our show and who regularly gives us feedback. Um, she she was at Vegas, 
And um, she went to the Star Trek six talk that that John gave, and uh, she she shared her thoughts on Facebook. Uh, so here, here's what she had to say, uh, Michael. Your recommendation was spot on. Yesterday I listened to Tenuto's talk on Star Trek Six and loved it. It was so informative and interesting. I love the photos he brought that really emphasized his talking points. And I am so glad that I listened to your show as I was able to recognize names such as Harv Bennett and understand the context and backstory of the names. Your show has added a deeper level of enjoyment to my first con experience, and I thank you. Uh, so I mean, we we thank you, Amy. I mean, I'm I'm glad that that you know we were able yeah. to do that. I'm glad that we were able to point you to to John. And you know, I told John this, and and it's the truth that 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 Star Trek Six panel was the highlight of the con for me. So yeah, um, I'm glad that that you were able to to see it. And uh, yeah, it's 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 awesome. So, it is. Yeah. Well. It's been fun talking to John about Jerry Goldsmith today, but that's not the only thing we're talking about here on Trek FM. So here's a look at what you may have missed elsewhere on the network. Previously on Trek.fm, Standard Orbit. I have been pushing this since I saw Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Into Darkness, and I saw Into Darkness like a week before it came out in the U.S., so I've been pushing it for a long freaking time. And the idea, of course, is to do Captain ex- Worf. Yeah, oh, Captain. Wait, no, that's not it. Earl Grey. And really, she's following the Hasbrat, I think, is really what it is. <laughs> Come for the revolution, stay for the Hasbrat. It's got to be fresh Hasbrat. None of that replicated stuff. Like, Daniel's like, at the, watching the end of this episode, like, tears are coming down the face. It's like, no, oh, it's the Hasbrat. It's so spicy. It's what it is. <laughs> the Orb. Also, the original title of this episode was A Matter of Breeding, which when we talk about things feeling TNG-ish, that could have been a Riker episode. <laughs> <laughs> the Ready Room. It's about people and feelings and emotions. It's about philosophy. It's about the future. It's about hope. It's about glory. It's about intellectual promise. That's what Axanar is about. It is not a story about pew, pew, pew. I promise you that. To the journey! I do have one honorable mention. Name it. Prox! Oh, <laughs> How could we not have a top five, season five moments without Prax? Warp five. It kind of like is akin to um, when fans saw the galaxy class in the next generation for the very first time. And you had... Basically, a crew and civilian compliment of what over a thousand people. About two thirds of that compliment were civilians and their families. So you actually did have teachers and scholars and scientists and their extended families on board. Commentary: Trek stars. But you would never pick up on that based on the way that it plays out. Aside from the fact that they explicitly tell you in the dialogue, <laughs> you know. The six oh two club. It is what it is. I mean, Tom Cruise is who he is, but at the, at the end of the day, he delivered this fantastic movie, and so did all the other new characters. Literary treks. You know, um, you had the great Enterprise book, The Good That Men Do. And this is the good that men don't do. And, uh, you know, Edmund Burke is, is famous for, for saying that the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. Mm-hmm. Axanar. 
the official podcast. It is the spirit of TOS that matters that's being captured, but it doesn't necessarily have to be the aesthetic. The aesthetic was 1966 to 1969 that had its moment, it had its time, and there's a certain amount of charm still to that. But it doesn't allow you to push the narrative forward because that type of aesthetic holds creativity back, in my opinion. Women at Warp. Keiko could totally beat the crap out of Rumpelstiltskin. This is so, like, I cannot buy this at all. That she's just sitting there being like, oh, my baby. At the very least, she could throw a plant at him or something. (laughs) Because we established in TNG that pot foo is a thing. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. So check out these shows and find out what we're talking about in your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button. That helps us out greatly and makes it easier for other listeners to find the show as they search iTunes. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, and of course you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website and grab the RSS link as well. Another way you can help us keep all of our shows coming to you each week is to become a patron of the network on Patreon. If you visit patreon.com slash trekfm, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm, you'll find our current goals and different milestone contribution levels along with all the great perks we have for you. These perks include early access to content, exclusive content, producer credits, seats on our content development team, and more. We really appreciate any support you can give us and hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trek.fm. If you want to contact us, you can fill out the form at trek.fm slash contact, or you can leave us a voicemail. Just look in the sidebar of the show page or go to speakpipe.com slash trek.fm. On Twitter, you can find the network at trek.fm. On Facebook, you can find the network at facebook.com slash trek.fm, or you can find the Babel Conference on Facebook as well. Uh, just type in the Babel Conference, that's B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook or go to our website at trek.fm and click the discussion tab on the menu bar. John, where can people find you on the internet? Well, you can find me uh, in the aforementioned Babel Conference, climbing around from time to time. Uh, you can also find me uh, on Twitter at Kessel Junkie, and you can also find me on another little podcast called Words with Nerds that airs uh, every Thursday through iTunes, Stitcher, and all the rest. And you can find me on Trek FM doing Standard Orbit with Drew, and you can find me on CommentaryTrackStars.com doing Commentary Trackstars Off Topic and Commentary Trackstar Babies. And you can also find me on Twitter at Mumbles3K, and you can find the show on Twitter at ComTrackStars, or you can email us at ComTrackStars at gmail.com. Before we go, we'd like to ask everyone to please support our sponsor who helps us bring commentary, Trek Stars, and all of our shows to you each week. And our sponsor for this show is Audible.com. Audible is a great way for you to read all of the books you've always wanted to read but never thought you'd have the time for. John, what book do you have for us today? Well, in honor of uh, one of Mr. Goldsmith's other uh, landmark scores, uh, Planet of the Apes by Pierre Boulle. Uh, narrated by Greg Wise, uh, and Greg Wise reads Pierre Boulle's chilling, iconic novel about a nightmare world where apes rule over men. In a spaceship that can travel at the speed of light, Ulysses, a journalist, sets off from Earth for the nearest solar system. He finds there a planet which resembles his own, 
except that on Soror, humans behave like animals and are hunted by a civilized race of primates. It's a good little yarn people might be familiar with. Yeah, my, my wife's been trying to learn French, so she got this book in French. Oh, cool. Yeah, so now she needs to get the Audible book so that she can she can listen to the English and see whether or not her French is, is improving. That I think that's a great idea. Because originally it was in French. Yes. It's a French book. Yeah. Well, you can get this book for free uh, since you listen to Trek FM. As a Trek FM listener, you can get a free audiobook of your choice along with a 30-day trial to see just how great Audible is. Just go to audibletrial.com slash trekfm and sign up today. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash trekfm, and we thank Audible for supporting Commentary, Trek Stars, and the network. All right. Well, next week we're going to be all by ourselves, so we're actually going to have to, like, talk, which is unfortunate. <sighs> but We'll get through it. Yeah, you know. <laughs> what can you do? Next week uh, will be part two in our series on Jerry Goldsmith, where we're going to look at his entire career, or at least the highlights and in particular, um, discuss his Oscar-winning work on Richard Donner's, right? Yeah, I think so. The Omen. 